Welcome to the Evolution Show. I'm Johan Landgren. If you're new to the show, I'm a full-time investor and writer in sustainable tech. And on the Evolution Show, we bring inspiration to talk about smart energy solutions, electric transports, AI, and inspiration for sustainable living. And today, I have a really inspiring guest for you. The eco-warrior, changemaker, and environmental advisor, Pella Thiel. Pella Thiel is a leader on many fronts, which I think you will notice in this episode. And today we will talk about the pioneering work she is doing to establish legal rights for nature. And we will also talk about what is called ecocide law, which we'll come back to in the next episode when Pella will be back on the show. I hope you like the content, and if you want to support the show, we really appreciate a thumbs up and consider subscribing. As always, stay ahead of the curve and stay electric. This is the Evolution Show. Welcome to the Evolution Show, Pella Thiel. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, you're one of the founders of Transition Sweden, uh, which is part of the global transition network uh, that works for a transition to a fossil-free economy and to build resilient local economies. And for me, this is extra exciting uh, because the transition network has grown a lot over the 10 years I have followed it. And many people I've met through the years have uh, taught me a lot of things and actually inspired me and my friend Robert to, uh, to write a book uh, about going fossil free uh, with a focus on Sweden um, and building a you know, resilient economy. So I'm quite familiar with uh, what you have done and I think it's really exciting to talk about this and hear what uh, your perspectives on this. So perhaps we can start there and how did you become, in, become involved in the transition network and Perhaps you can tell us a bit about the transition network for people not familiar about it. Yeah, okay. Um, so the, the transition network is mainly focusing on actually the change processes that we have to, to be in now, which is a, a transition from a very resource intensive economy where we also are largely separated from the living systems we are a part of, so we don't see that we use a lot of resources and we some of us uh, in in like where we are living here in sweden um, we are dependent on a lot of resources from other parts of the world that we can take the responsibility for our own consumption um, so we want to bring that back to where people are and uh, that we can have um, a relationship to to our own needs and our own places uh, building local resilience, as you said. And uh, for me, one attractive and, and particular aspect of uh, the transition movement is also that we think that in order to make that transition of uh, structures and systems in society, we have to also make an inner transition in how we view the world and how we perceive ourselves in it and uh, our values. And um, for me, I had been uh, involved in the environmental movement uh, quite intensely for 10 years or so and grown increasingly frustrated over the, the solutions that we 
were working for and that was presented because I didn't see they they weren't uh, on the same level as the challenges that we face. So in an inherently unsustainable society, we were um, proposing solutions that would solve one part of a problem somewhere, but we were still heading for collapse. So uh, I wasn't aware of that at the moment, but what I was looking for was uh, an idea around the systems transformation, uh, like a more systemic approach to solving this crisis that we are in. And that's what I found when I came in contact with the transition movement, first actually in, in the US when I met the person there and, and bought the transition handbook which had just come out, uh, written by Rob Hopkins, one of the co-founders of Transition Network, and this was in 2008. And then I went to uh, some people from the first transition town in Totnes in England, came to Sweden and, and hosted a, a, a course in transition. And I went to that course and I was just really deeply moved by it and also in a way found my own um, my, my own deep motivation and my own deep love for people and the world and things that are beautiful and I just thought you know this is what I have to devote my life to That's what yeah. I have done. and you are truly dedicated to many issues on many fronts I think within the environmental world so to speak and uh, you are also a chairperson for and ecocide which is a Swedish version of the international network Stop Ecocide, if, if I understand it correctly. And uh, your work to spread the idea of an international so-called ecocide legislation to protect nature or entities in nature, such as rivers, forests and mountains, for example. And you raise awareness and push for the creation of such laws with uh, Swedish businesses and universities, where you also hold um, guest lectures um, about this, to talk about ecocide law. And you have also been quite frequently uh, in media um, in the last, last couple of years. And uh, you have received the prestigious award, uh, Environmental Hero of the Year, by the, yes, from yeah, the king, from the, from the World Wildlife Foundation, and, and uh, yeah, handed out by the king, Swedish king. So that's, that's great, I think. Uh, I mean, the, we need attention. And, and that's, I think, was great that you, you got it. Um, so, but for those unfamiliar with an ecocide law and uh, I mean, could you share the idea behind it and tell us perhaps some examples or where it's already in place? Yeah, so uh, it isn't in place yet, because what we are talking about when we're talking about ecocide as an international crime is uh, exactly what the word sort of says in itself, that it's on the same level as genocide but for nature so what we are working for is that ecocide should be a crime within the international criminal court in the hague where the crimes of grave concern to the whole international community can be prosecuted and those are at the moment four so genocide war crimes crimes of aggression and crimes against humanity and we believe that there should be a fifth crime among those, they are called also crimes against peace and that we need a fifth crime which is ecocide and this is something I've been working with the last eight years or so 
and it has been a fairly uh, low key like just a, a proposal basically uh, that hasn't received so much attention until last year um yeah tw 2020 was really a, a pivotal year for this idea when the, it got a lot of traction a lot of attention from uh, people like the pope and uh, several governments and heads of state and um, uh, also businesses and so it's it suddenly it's talked about and just last week the there was a, a a definition of ecocide as a crime within the ICC proposed by our organization Stop Ecocide Foundation and um, they had gathered a panel of um, really top level international lawyers with a huge experience who has been working for six months to craft the definition uh, of ecocide as a crime and I should have it in front of me but I don't and, and actually that was on the request from two Swedish parliamentarians. So it, it, there are really interesting Swedish connections also to this idea. Um, also Olof Palme, the Swedish prime minister who gathered the world for the first time to uh, uh, an international conference on the environment back in 72, the Stockholm conference. He was one of the first people to mention the word ecocide. So it has got a long history and also actually when when the Rome statute which is the the regulating document behind uh, ICC in The Hague when that was negotiated crimes against nature was actually part of it but it was taken out and uh, well you can sort of understand why that happened but now we see also the effect that large-scale damage and destruction of nature is is legal and yeah. we can we that has to stop when i was preparing this conversation uh, i kept thinking of my favorite book one of my favorite books uh, by the american writer john michael greer uh, he's written a book called the wealth of nature economics as if survival mattered which i think is a great title but the main theme of the book is why humanity needs to reinvent itself and realize that the primary economy like you are very well aware uh, is uh, nature and that everything we think we create with our genius as humans is in fact derived directly or indirectly from nature uh, while the services we create is in the secondary economy and that is born from resources we extract from nature so humans must step away from the illusion that we are the masters of nature and uh, once we realize this we can start living in balance with nature and understand that um, with finite resources we always have to give back. Uh, I mean, it feels like common sense, but uh, uh, for most people, the connection with nature nature is lost. And that's something I think you are talking a lot about, how we can bridge that gap back. Because um, maybe, I mean, maybe ecocide law could be that one of those, those bridges. Uh, uh, I don't know what you think. I mean, we need to create a new norm. Um, um, for most people, they live in urban areas and so on, they don't get in touch with nature and they don't see the damage uh, and they don't see, you know, um, you know, the well-being that could be created, they could feel much better and so on, uh, just being close to nature. Uh, so do you see the protection of nature with ecocide laws uh, as a way to get back in touch with nature and perhaps 
a step by step uh, for people to realize how dependent we are on this balance with nature that we seem to have lost. Yeah, exactly that. I mean, that is what I see as the most uh, powerful thing of ecocide law by putting it side by side with the, the crimes against humanity and genocide is also to say that actually, you know, our human rights, our human well-being is totally dependent on the well-being of the living systems we are a part of. And uh, this is, I think to us as individuals, this is totally um, understandable and, and natural. I mean, p children know that we need to take care of nature. But the problem is that our systems, they don't know that. So our economic systems, our political systems, our legal systems are unaware. They cannot handle nature as, as, as the system that we are a part of because they were constructed from another mindset. Um, and so, for example, if we go back to 72, when the world gathered for the first time to say, okay, we have a problem that we have um, pollution that is serious, is threatening human health and is crossing national boundaries. And we, so we need to discuss it together. Uh, but at that time, I mean, the economy today, 50 years later, is a totally different story. It's a global economy where the players, the most powerful organizations in the world, actually, are uh, corporations which are transnational. And they don't have, there are no regulations. It's basically a cowboy economy. They, they, it's totally unregulated. And we can't have that. <laughs> so, so organizations with so much power and that are actually now destructive, they have to, to obey laws that protect what is of most essential value, as you say. I mean, it's the, it's the, the primary primary source of, uh, of everything, actually. If we just take a step back um, for people to understand how did we end up here? I think it's important before we address the, you know, the solutions. Listen to an interview when you were talking in my friend's um, Hannes Anagrius Swedish pod, uh, Tillväxt Paradigmet or the growth paradigm. And you talked about two things. I think the, the fossil fuel consumption uh, or extraction uh, as one. And the second one was um, you know, uh, the Western culture uh, of dominating, you know, um, nature, that the perception that we are the masters of the nature, not, uh, not uh, you know, just a part of it. Uh, so perhaps you can just briefly explain for people who are not so familiar with, I mean, people might not really understand why we ended up here. And, and if they do, perhaps we, it's easier also to, you know, move, move forward. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so I think it's really interesting. I'm an ecologist, so I think a lot about nature and how it works and, and what happens in, in nature and so forth. And the, the international frameworks at the moment who are sort of mapping the destruction of nature. So scientists are, are louder and louder saying that we are in a sixth mass extinction of species at the moment. And the last one was 65 million years ago. So that's long before humans were even thought about when, when the dinosaurs left. And now this mass extinction is um, our fault. And uh, 
So these frameworks, like the Convention on Biodiversity, for example, and the UN Intergovernmental Panel on, on uh, uh, Ecosystems, they are saying that we need a societal transformation. So that's not just any change. It's a total reorganization of our systems. And how do we do that? And I think that culture is actually our operating system. And we don't reflect on that so much until it's challenged. And now in this time of transition, it is being challenged. So why are we where we are? Why are we destructive uh, on a level that that threatens, you know, civilizations and the human species and also life on Earth. Um, and then we need to think about what happened with, with that cultural assumption of, of uh, dominance and control and separation. When that got fueled by the very powerful energy that we found in uh, fossil fuels, it really took off. And that's what happened um, during the second half of the of the 20th century and uh, with the result that here we are today in an ecological crisis and um, I think so there are many ways to understand that but one way is that um, I think from last year the mass of human structures stuff basically, is now larger than the whole, the entire biosphere. So our buildings, roads, bridges, things are, way, they weigh more than all of the animals, all of the plants, all of the living things. And that's just, you know, I, um, I find it mind blowing. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, I mean, and if we talk a little bit about um, climate, I mean, the climate crisis, uh, many people, of course, they realize that we stop, need to stop using fossil fuels. Uh, and they see, I mean, we see the devastation uh, and what that is causing the planet and, and beyond. One of the problems when it comes to people's lack of understanding for our dependence on nature and the devastation we cause with our overconsumption and way of life has to do with urbanization. So I thought we could, you know, elaborate a little bit on that uh, because people in megacities and large communities, they really rarely get in touch with nature. So, uh, and they don't get the deeper understanding of uh, the importance nature is uh, for us. So how do we go about to change that? We talked a little bit about ecocide, but in a more general term, uh, how do you see we can, you know, bridge that gap, so to speak? <laughs> Yeah, that's a fascinating question. <laughs> we could have a, a conversation on just that question. Uh, there are many, many answers to that. And one is that I think we need new, new institutions like laws, for example, that make our systems aware that we are a part of nature. But it's also about how we create a personal understanding around nature and my favorite idea like when people say oh so if you if you could do just one thing what would you do <laughs> then i used to say I, I want to say two things one is ecocide as an international crime and the other one is to have uh, a garden in every school because 
I think that's just uh, totally uh, a very obvious thing that kids need to be out. They need to be connecting with nature and with, with living beings and they need to understand that every day, every breath you take, every meal you eat, you are a part of a living whole that is much larger than you will ever understand. So you have to, you know, you have to be aware of that. And I think we have to be aware of it as individuals and as a society. And, uh, and there are many ways to create that awareness, but one thing that would be so simple and so cheap and so also important for the well-being of kids and, and people is to just have a garden. And that's like, that's also an ancient understanding. I mean, pa the paradise is actually a garden. Um, so, yeah. And people are, who are interested in your work, I mean, how do you work with the end ecocide uh, movement, so to speak? And uh, how, how, how do you work to develop laws uh, for the protection of nature? And, and for people interested to get involved and, and spread this idea, how can they do so? Mm. Um, so what we are mainly doing is to, and this is what I would also like people to do, is to create awareness that this possibility exists to have ecocide as an international crime. It's quite easy to do, actually, because the institutions are already there, the frameworks are already there, we have already thought that this was a good idea. Uh, we just have to do it and uh, so what we are doing is to create awareness around that and that's actually quite fun work because it's so hopeful because people know that we can't continue like we are and they don't see any solutions and this is actually one very feasible and also powerful and possible thing uh, so it's, it creates a lot of energy and hope and at the moment in End Ecocide Sweden, we are working to, I would say, um, we are working towards the Stockholm Plus 50 conference. So next year in June 22, there will be the next UN conference on sustainable development in Stockholm to, to celebrate the, the first UN conference on the environment in 72 and we think that ecocide law needs to be on the, on the agenda there. So we are working towards the Swedish government, whatever that is nowadays, I don't know. Um, and we are also working on two international platforms. One is to create support around business. So for business leaders to be behind ecocide law, which is maybe seems weird, but it's not because for most businesses, this would be a really good idea since it would level out the playing field saying that, okay, we, we don't want to have competition where some actors can make profit by destroying ecosystems. We need that to be illegal for all. And business usually like um, really, you know, long-term rules that holds everyone accountable and more long-term rules than international criminal law is, you don't get that. So that's one of the platforms and the uh, and uh, we work through, we call it Ecocide Law Alliance. 
So if you are involved in the business context, uh, please look that up. And uh, the other one that we are working on is um, faith for ecocide law. So gathering actually the world's religions for the protection and uh, reverence for creation or Mother Earth or whatever you uh, will call it. And um, that's actually, I think that's one of the beauties with this idea is to say that, okay, I mean, we can disagree on a lot of things as people. We can disagree what God is called, for example, but we could actually agree that we all need nature and that we all have to protect nature. So let's, let's do that. And um, uh, yeah, so if you're involved in faith communities, please look that up. Faith for Ecocide Law. Yeah, yeah, sounds really interesting. And I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, if you can unite people under the same umbrella with the same cause, um, I mean, why not? Uh, the more, the merrier, the better to change this. Uh, so I think that's a great idea. And, but uh, just on a personal note, then, I mean, if people are wondering, uh, it's, some people think like, yeah, she's talking a lot, but what is she doing herself? So I should throw it, throw it, throw it in as just a fun, fun anecdote. But how, uh, how, how have your knowledge and drive to protect nature, which you've been working on for so long now, how has it been affecting your personal life? Could you tell us a little bit? I, I read that you, you're living in a smaller community on the island of Ingara outside Stockholm, and you have your own pigs, uh, which is rare nowadays. Uh, so perhaps you could tell us a little bit what you're doing in your own life. I have to reveal though that the the pigs are now in the freezer. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> but we do have still sheep. Yeah. Um, what do I do in my own life? Yeah, I can give you a list. I do have solar panels <laughs> and I do have a compost toilet and I try to, um, yeah, I, I try to uh, align my life and my needs with the living systems where I live so that I can close, have a very tight um, circulation of things that I need and things that I leave um, from myself. And uh, we have a, a little transition group here at Ingera where I live as well and uh, we have a, a garden together and vegetables and uh, yeah sounds yeah. great that's that's fine i mean that's perfect more more than most do, well, will say i would say so that's just just fun to hear how you, so be, because it's uh, interesting when people make use of your knowledge uh, and, and use it you know concretely uh, it doesn't have to be much but it, it in your case it's uh, i think it's great so but uh, we're going to dig deeper into the ecocide laws in uh, the second part of this conversation so we're not uh, finished yet uh, so stick around. I'll encourage people to stick around for more about ecocide and what we can do to make this transition we all need to do. And uh, so for now, thank you so much, uh, Pella Thiel, for this introduction and conversation. Thank it you. It was Johan. really interesting. Yeah, it was great. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Tell us what you think in the comment section below. And if you like the content and you want to support the show, we really appreciate a thumbs up and consider subscribing and stick around for the next episode when I'll be back to talk more with Pella Thiel, focusing on the framework she is developing for what's called the ecocide law 
And for people interested in sustainable tech, I encourage you to stick around as well, because we have three exciting episodes about Tesla and electric vehicles coming up. As always, stay ahead of the curve and stay electric. <laughs>